Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the midnight hours of November 15, 1959, Moonlight shone over River Valley Farm, casting the expansive two-story home of the Clutter family in a dreamlike glow. The residents slept soundly. The house sat calm and still. A gentle breeze carried the cool autumn air across the property's harvested fields. A scarecrow's shirt flapped lightly in the wind. The farm's peace was dreamlike, but tragic coincidence would soon disrupt its slumber. Pure, vicious chance carried with it a typhoon of misery. Nobody could have predicted what was about to transpire. It was random, it was purposeless, and it sat in a car half a mile down the tree-lined driveway hidden beneath the shadow. Inside, a sinister presence waited, tainting the air with a sense of dread. The dark entity had already decided there would be no witnesses. By the end of the night, that decision would prove deadly. Awful luck had brought the farm to its ruin. Welcome to our first episode of Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. While we at ParCast love exploring the open-ended mysteries of our first show, Unsolved Murders, some of the most fascinating crimes are the ones where the bad guys get caught in the end. That's why every Wednesday, we'll tell you the tales of actual closed cases and reveal how some of life's greatest murder mysteries were solved. In part one, we will introduce you to the victims, the mystery of their deaths, and the initial steps investigators took towards finding their killer. In part two, we'll take you through all the dramatic twists and turns of the investigation. And finally, reveal how the suspect was caught and the murder was solved. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free, exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Clutter family, a picture-perfect household of four who were found senselessly murdered in their home of Holcomb, Kansas. This week, we'll dive into the lives of the Clutters up to their last day on Earth. Then we'll discuss the discovery of their tragic deaths on November 15, 1959. Next week, we'll cover how the case went from hometown horror to a nationally infamous true crime saga. A story that would be forever immortalized in Truman Capote's groundbreaking book, In Cold Blood. Most people in Finney County, Kansas, knew the Clutters well. They were model citizens, highly respected and beloved members of their community. And their sparkling reputation was something that the family patriarch, Herb Clutter, had fostered within his own life from the very beginning. Throughout his childhood and teenage years, Herb was known as a good-natured young man who was intelligent and ambitious to boot, qualities that got him far in his small Kansas town. 
He attended college in the early 1930s, a time when few people could pursue higher education and thrived. He was a talented student in the agriculture department and well-liked by his peers. But his life hit a high note when he met his classmate's younger sister, Bonnie Fox. Hey, Mom wanted me to drop off. Oh, (laughs) you're not my brother. You must be Fox's sister. I'm his friend Herb, Herb Clutter. Bonnie, my brother mentioned you briefly, but I think we may have met before. We've met? You're a Methodist, aren't you? Oh, at church. I think I have seen you there. Hey, um, maybe next week we should sit together, talk about the sermon. You know what? I think I'd like that. After some initial awkwardness, Herb and Bonnie hit it off quite well. Both were devout Methodists, and their shared values brought them together. They dated for a short time before Herb proposed. The couple married in 1934, when Herb was 23 and Bonnie was 20 years old. When Herb had graduated college, the couple moved to Garden City, Kansas. There, Herb began work as the assistant to Finney County's agricultural agent, where he educated farmers on the latest advancements in agriculture. And because he proved himself a quick study, he earned a promotion from assistant to agent after just seven months on the job. Things were once again looking up for Herb Clutter. As he laid down roots in Garden City, he made friends wherever he went. His new community found him and Bonnie incredibly likable, and the Clutters became mainstays in many local social clubs. Yeah, despite his thriving personal life and successful career, Herb wanted more. He'd always dreamed of owning his own land and starting a farm where he could truly provide for his growing family. In 1936, Bonnie gave birth to their first daughter, Eviana. Then, three years later in 1939, they had their second daughter, Beverly. Inspired by Beverly's birth, 28-year-old Herb finally decided to take out a substantial loan to lease some land. That year, Herb publicly announced his resignation as the county's agricultural agent. But some of the older men in town found his youthful determination highly amusing. Herb Clutter, get over here. We heard you might be starting your own farm. You two heard right. (laughs) That's fine, Herb. You always know what's best to do on the other fellow's land. Plant this, terrace that. You might... Think differently if the place was your own. Now you might think differently if you actually listen to me for a change. (laughs) That's right, you old boys. I'm about to show you how a college man gets things done. Well, good luck, Herb. Good luck. Spurred on by the community, Herb leased land in Holcomb, Kansas, a small town only seven miles west of Garden City. He named his new property River Valley Farm due to its proximity to the Arkansas River. Herb set to work immediately and began toiling away for 18 hours a day, building his land up to what he'd always imagined, and his efforts paid off. In a surprisingly short period of time, he grew his small operation into an expansive outfit sprawling across 3,800 acres of farmland, 800 acres of which he had purchased outright. He raised hundreds of sheep and cattle while cultivating wheat, milo seed, and grass seed. During busy seasons, he needed 18 employees to keep his business running smoothly. It was clear to everyone in Finney County that Herb's success was hard-earned, and soon he became one of the most prominent farmers in the region. Some accredited his achievements to his college education, 
while others believed his religious devotion was to thank. As a devout Methodist, he believed that any drug or stimulant was sinful. He refused to drink coffee and had never touched an alcoholic drink in his life. Herb was so against spirits, he even brought it up when interviewing his farmhands. I've heard good things about you, and your resume seems to be in order. But before I get you a contract, uh, tell me, do you drink? In my younger days, I had a bit of a wild streak. Ah, that's too bad. But but I ain't had a lick of drink in seven years. I swear it. Hmm. Well, seven years is a long time. But I warn you, I have no tolerance for drink on my farm or near my farmhands. If I hear a single whisper that you've been harboring alcohol, you'll be out the door. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. Good. Now I'll get you that contract and we'll get you started. I think you'll like working on River Valley Farm. While Herb was merciless when it came to his no-alcohol policy, he was widely regarded as a great employer. He paid well, was a friendly boss, and was known to give his employees bonuses on a regular basis. Most of his hired hands thought giving up alcohol was well worth the trade-off. Whatever the cause of Herb's success, his farm continued to grow, and his family grew right along with it. On January 2nd, 1943, Bonnie gave birth to their third daughter, Nancy May. And less than two years later, their fourth child and only son followed. They named him Kenyon Neal. The Clutter family had grown to be six strong, and to accommodate their expansion, Herb designed and built his own large two-story farmhouse. He also constructed a smaller home on the property for his full-time ranch hand, Alfred Stockline, and his wife and children. River Valley Farm became a peaceful and prosperous place. The Clutter children followed in their father's footsteps, all of them becoming popular straight-A students, beloved by their classmates and teachers alike. Bonnie took an active role in her church community, making many great friends along the way, and Herb gained more and more prominence within Kansas and even the nation as a whole. He eventually became so well-known for his role in the agriculture community that President Dwight Eisenhower appointed him to the Federal Farm Credit Board. The board, which represents the nation's 12 farm credit districts, was one of the highest honors a farmer could achieve, and Herb was only 43 years old at the time. Naturally, Herb was delighted by this appointment, and for the most part, life was good. Until a dark cloud came into the clutter's otherwise sunny lives. Between the births of her four children, Bonnie Clutter developed a pattern of postnatal depression. She also began to suffer from chronic back pain in the early 1950s, which severely limited her ability to do the things she loved, like partake in her many social clubs or join her family on public outings. And this change eventually caused Bonnie's depression to hang like an ever-threatening cloud of misery. Out of politeness, people in town refrained from talking about the specifics of her condition, but they would refer to her bouts as little spells. From time to time, these tics or spells would get so severe that she would check herself into the psychiatric ward at Wesley Medical Center in Wichita. Her struggles with depression and chronic pain also caused her to sleep more often. While Herb regularly awoke at 6.30 in the morning, Bonnie would sleep as late into the morning as she could. And soon, their differing schedules began to wear on their marriage. Can you quiet down? The doctor says I need sleep. You've already slept 10 hours. Well, 
I guess I need ten more. Ridiculous. You're wasting yourself away, Bonnie. And you want me to waste away too? You want the farm to fall to pieces as I lay here beside you? I just want you to be quiet. Quiet! 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 Before I quiet you all myself! Well, it's too late for quiet now. In order to preserve the peace, Bonnie moved out of the master bedroom and began to sleep in another bedroom on the second floor of their home. While this change drew some whispers around town, it seemed to have helped save their relationship. They began arguing less, and for a time, life for the clutters continued in a pleasant manner. By 1959, Herb was 48 and Bonnie was 45. Their oldest daughter, Eviana, was 23 and married, while Beverly was 20 and engaged. Their youngest daughter, Nancy, was 16 years old, and their only son, Kenyon, was 15. As Thanksgiving approached, the Clutters invited their extended family, over 50 people, to join them in celebrating at River Valley Farm. They began their preparations several weeks ahead, but they were completely unaware that the gathering would never occur. Instead, an unforeseen tragedy would bring these hopeful plans to a jarring halt. When we return, we'll cover the Clutters' last day on Earth. And now, back to the story. By 1959, Herb and Bonnie Clutter's oldest daughter, 23-year-old Eviana, had gotten married and moved to Illinois. Their second daughter, 20-year-old Beverly, was engaged and attending college on the other side of Kansas. Herb and Bonnie's youngest children, 16-year-old Nancy and 15-year-old Kenyon, still lived at home and attended high school. On Friday, November 13, 1959, Herb, Bonnie, and Kenyon drove to the local school where Nancy was appearing in a theater performance. She played Becky Thatcher in the school's production of Tom Sawyer, and the family was eager to see her show. The play went splendidly, and the Clutters went backstage to congratulate Nancy on her performance. Mom, Dad, what did you think? (laughs) We're so proud. You did so well. And Nancy, you looked wonderful. Just beautiful, honey. A real Southern belle. What did you think, Kenyon? It was okay. Kenyon. Don't be a wet blanket, son. (laughs) Speaking of parties, the State Theater is having a spook show at 1130 in honor of Friday the 13th, and everyone is going. I'd really love to join them. Now, you know the rules. You have to be home by 10, a far cry sooner than 1130. I know, I know, but can you make an exception just this once? After all, I had a great performance. Let me celebrate. I don't know, Herb. Maybe we should let her. Hmm. Will Bobby be there? Well, everyone is going. I'm sure that includes Bobby. I don't know. Dad, everyone will be there. Fine. You can go just this once. But be careful with that boy. (gasps) Thank you, thank you, thank you! I mean it. Be careful with him. With Herb's approval, Nancy raced off to join her friends, and Herb, Bonnie, and Kenyon returned home. That night, Herb stayed up late to make sure his daughter returned home safely. But Nancy didn't arrive home until two in the morning, and she'd received a ride from a boy named Bobby Rupp. Bobby Rupp was a good-looking, athletic young man. He and Nancy had been friends since they were kids, and when Nancy had grown old enough to start dating, she and Bobby had hit it off and had been going steady for three full years. Herb and Bonnie liked Bobby as a person, but there was one major problem. 
and Herb felt it was time he spoke up. As Nancy snuck into the house, Herb called out to her. Nancy! Oh no. This isn't about the time. It's about the boy who drove you home. Dad, I like Bobby. You like Bobby. I do like Bobby, and for a 17-year-old boy, he is very gentlemanly. But the boy is Roman Catholic. Methodists and Catholics don't marry well. But Dad, I... No buts, Nancy. You need to stop teasing him and break it off. (sighs) Okay, Dad. I know we can't get married, and I'm going off to college soon. It's just, I don't want to hurt him. And he's just so cute. Nancy. I promise I'll let him down easy. Thank you. Now off to bed. Nancy knew she would have to break it off with Bobby eventually, but still, young love was a hard thing to end. The breakup was a problem for another day. Satisfied with the conversation, Herb retired to his room and fell asleep. While Herb normally started his day around 6.30 in the morning, on Saturday, November 14th, he woke up sometime past 7. He showered, shaved, and grabbed an apple for breakfast. Around 8 in the morning, Herb waltzed over to his barn where he ran into Alfred Stockline, his groundskeeper. Alfred was Herb's most trusted employee. He lived on the premises of River Valley Farm where he had his own home less than 100 yards away from the Clutters farmhouse. Morning, Alfred. Ready for another day? Well, Herb, do you have anything specific you need me to do? My baby's sick and the missus and I have been up all night. I've been thinking of taking her to the doctor. Oh, that's awful. By all means, take the morning. Go help your child. Thanks a bundle. I knew you would understand. And hey, if you and your missus need anything, you let me know, all right? Much appreciated. After dismissing Alfred, Herb fed his old riding horse, Babe, and took a leisurely stroll with his dog, Teddy, to the orchard by the river. Western Kansas has a fairly arid climate, where most fruit trees struggle to grow, but Herb had taken great pains to cultivate apple, pear, peach, and cherry trees at the bank of the Arkansas River. He called it his own little paradise on earth. Yet, as he and Teddy approached the orchard, the hair on the dog's neck began to rise. He barked viciously at a neighboring field before racing into the grass. Herb followed Teddy, his own nerves unsteady, but soon the dog's growls grew silent. Five men emerged with shotguns in hand. Teddy backed away, tail between his legs. He was notoriously gun-shy, and one look at the stranger's rifles instantly cowed him. I don't recognize you boys. You realize you're trespassing on my land? Trespassing? You sure about that? Darn sure. Hmm. Our mistake, we're from down south, Oklahoma way. What are Oklahomans doing on my farmland? Hunting visits. They grow real fat around here. Looks like we followed them all the way to your property. We'd be happy to pay you for a license if you'd let us stay. (laughs) I'm just joshing you fellas. I'm not as poor as I look. Go ahead. Get all you can. Thank you kindly. With the tip of his hat, Herb walked away, leaving the men to their sport. While trespassing hunters may seem unusual, it was a fairly common occurrence at the time, especially during pheasant season. With his anxieties now settled, Herb returned home. He spent the early morning speaking with his son, Kenyon, and his business associate, Gerald Van Vliet. In the early afternoon, Herb and Kenyon drove to Garden City, 
where Herb was leading a meeting of the local 4-H club, a nationwide organization dedicated to helping young people develop practical and agricultural skills. During this particular meeting, Herb dedicated his time to honoring Mrs. Hideo Ashida, a 4-H member known for her friendliness and generosity. The meeting ended soon after, and Kenyon, Mrs. Ashida, and her four children packed into Herb's pickup truck. The Ashidas lived halfway between Garden City and River Valley Farm, so Herb drove them home from the 4-H meetings quite often. During the drive back, Mrs. Ashida expressed her gratitude to Herb. Gosh, that was such a jolt. Seems like I'm always thanking you, Herb. You're the one we're trying to thank here. I know, and I appreciate it. It's just, please don't make me give a speech at the banquet. No speech, but speeches are simple. Oh, you're different. The way you can stand up and talk to hundreds of people, thousands, and be so easy. Convince anybody about whatever. Just nothing scares you. I wouldn't say nothing. I can't imagine you afraid. No matter what happened, you'd talk your way out of it. I appreciate your confidence, but I'm not sure I share it. Wait, are you... is something wrong? Huh? Oh, I just... Uh... I can't talk you into giving a speech, so I guess I can't convince anybody to do whatever, can I? <laughs> I guess not. Herb dropped the family off at their home soon after, and he thought about what Mrs. Ishida had said. While she was convinced that he was fearless, Herb knew there was one dreaded thing nobody could avoid, death itself. Herb wasn't one to dwell on the macabre, but lately his mind kept coming back to the topic. He had been contemplating purchasing life insurance for over a year, and he'd recently decided to pull the trigger. As he and Kenyon returned to their home, Herb prepared for the arrival of Bob Johnson, the Garden City representative of New York Life Insurance. On this day of all days, Herb felt he was finally ready to buy a policy. Know what they say about you, Herb? Say, since haircuts went to $1.50, Herb writes the barber a check. That's correct. That's the way I do business. No cash ever. Keeps things simple and easy to track. Should make it easier for Kenyon when he eventually takes over this place. Why, Herb? You're a young man. And from the looks of you, from what the medical reports tell us, we're likely to have you around for a couple weeks more. Tell the truth, I feel pretty good. I'm pretty optimistic. I've got an idea a man could make some real money around here the next few years. I suppose you're right. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Herb. Same here, fella. With Herb's check in his billfold, Bob Johnson shook Herb's hand and headed out the door around 6.10 p.m. Herb Clutter had just insured his own life for what would be approximately $355,000 today. And if he died by accidental means, his policy would pay twice as much. Around 6.50 that evening, the phone rang. Nancy answered to find Bobby Rupp calling. Bobby asked her if she wanted to go for a drive, and Nancy asked Herb if she could. But Herb reminded her of the talk they had had the night before. Nancy declined Bobby's invitation, but invited him over to watch TV with her family. Bobby had done this many times before, and so a little after 7 o'clock, he arrived at the Clutter home. Bobby, Nancy, Herb, and Kenyon all sat down in front of the television. Bonnie had already gone to bed upstairs. The rest of them watched TV for a few hours. Then around 10 p.m., the phone rang again. 
Herb answered to find his business partner, Gerald Van Vliet, on the other end. Gerald and Herb made plans to meet the next Monday, and Herb returned to the living room to watch TV with the kids. Around 10.30 p.m., Bobby got up to leave. Nancy led him to the door, and the couple talked for a long while. While Nancy had promised her father that she would end her relationship with Bobby, instead they made plans to see a movie the next day. As Nancy and Bobby were chatting, Herb and Kenyon headed to bed. Around 11 p.m., Bobby finally wished Nancy a good night, then hopped in his car and drove away. Eventually, all the lights in the house turned off one by one as the last member of the Clutter family went to sleep. River Valley Farm was quiet and peaceful. Moonlight bathed the house in a dreamlike glow. Inside, the clutters slept soundly, calm and still. Little did they know, death would soon find them. Coming up, the people of Holcomb, Kansas, make a horrific discovery. Now back to the story. At 7 a.m. on Sunday, November 15th, the sky was still dark and the stars were still shining on Holcomb, Kansas. Two teenage sons of Vic Ursick, one of Herb Clutter's employees, arrived at River Valley Farm to perform their Sunday morning chores. As they worked, the sun began to rise, but the Clutter House remained still. Neither boy noticed this strange silence as they focused on their work. The duo finished their tasks around 9 a.m., at which point they left the farm and ran down the long driveway. As they departed, they passed a vehicle driven by a middle-aged farmer named Clarence Ewalt. Clarence pulled up in front of the house with his daughter, who, for the sake of anonymity, we will refer to as Mary. Clarence was dropping Mary off so she could join the Clutters for church, just like she did every Sunday morning. Give the Clutters my regards. Okay, Papa. You know, you're always welcome to join us. I don't mind you going in for religion, but don't drag me into it. Now, go meet the Clutters so I can get myself back home. Okay. As Mary exited the car, Clarence watched her approach the house. He always made sure his daughter was safely inside before he left, just in case something untoward occurred. Mary reached the front door and knocked. She waited a moment and no response, then knocked again. Nothing. Mary thought that maybe the Clutters couldn't hear her, so she moved around to another door that led directly into Herb Clutter's office. She knocked again, only to notice the door was slightly ajar. Mary glanced inside, but it was too dark in the house to see. She called out and rang the doorbell. But still, no response. She thought about going in, but hesitated. Mary knew the Clutters were welcoming folk, but it was rude to enter another family's home without permission. She closed the office door behind her and walked further around the house to the garage where both of the Clutters' vehicles were still parked. This struck her as odd. Certainly, if the Clutters were home, they would answer. Finally, she knocked on the kitchen door, but nobody stirred. Confused, she returned to her father's car to tell him what had happened. Their cars are here, but they aren't responding. Mr. Clutter's office door was even open, but I don't think they'd like me barging right in. Huh. Maybe they're asleep. But that's impossible. Can you imagine Mr. Clutter missing church? Just to sleep? Oh, come on, then. We'll drive down to the teacherage. Susan should know what's happened. The teacherage was an apartment building in Holcomb where most of the schoolhouse teachers lived. 
Susan Kidwell, Nancy Clutter's best friend, stayed there with her mother, Mrs. Kidwell, who was also close friends with Bonnie. As the Ewalts approached the teacherage, Susan watched them from her window. She expected Mary to arrive with the Clutters as they all went to church together. Instead, she walked in with her father, bearing strange news. Hi, Mary, Mr. Ewald. Where are the Clutters? Well, Susan, it's the strangest thing. We don't know where they are. Did they tell you anything about having different plans today? Hmm, not that I know of. Mother, did you hear from the Clutters? If there was some change of plan, why, I'm sure they would have telephoned. Susan, why don't you call the house? They could be asleep, I suppose. Oh, good idea. Nancy always runs to the phone. Huh, no answer. Well, guess we'll need to go wake them up. With that, Clarence Ewald, Mary Ewald, and Susan Kidwell drove back to the Clutter House on River Valley Farm. As they approached, the rising sun had made the stillness of the house even more apparent. The trio climbed out of the car and walked up to the kitchen door, but they paused as Susan Kidwell felt a chill roll down her spine. Something's wrong. I've been here so many times, and yet... I don't want to go inside. Well, I would go inside, but I'm wearing my mud-covered work clothes. Plus, I've never been invited in before. Feels a bit odd going in now. Right, right. Uh, They won't mind me going, I just... I'll go with you. Would you? Thanks, Mary. Susan and Mary made their way inside. Immediately, Susan noticed a shocking lack of dirty dishes in the kitchen. The Clutters had clearly not eaten breakfast. Stranger still, Nancy Clutter's purse was lying on the ground, hanging slightly open. Susan knew Nancy would never leave her purse on the floor. The bizarre sight made her painfully aware of the strange silence hanging in the air. The two girls pressed onwards, their footsteps seeming to echo through the house like thunder. When they reached the bottom of the stairs, Susan called out. Nancy, I found your purse. Are you awake? With no response, the two girls proceeded up the steps, clinging to each other. Nancy's room was just at the top. Her door was open, and sunlight was streaming through the window. But as they stepped inside the room, they saw something so shocking, they could hardly comprehend it. (laughs) 16-year-old Nancy Clutter was tucked into bed, lying on her side, She was facing a wall covered in blood. Susan and Mary sprinted down the stairs and out of the house back to Clarence. She's dead! Nancy's dead! Dead? We'll get the police. Now get in the car. Clarence dropped the girls off with Susan's mother and called local Finney County Sheriff Earl Robinson. While leaving the teacherage, Clarence ran into Larry Hendricks, an English teacher at the town high school. Larry agreed to return with Clarence to the Clutter home. There, they were met by Sheriff Robinson. Together, the three men cautiously entered the house to find out exactly what had happened to the Clutters. They began in the kitchen, where they immediately noticed two strange things. First, they spotted Nancy Clutter's purse lying open on the floor. And soon after, they discovered that the kitchen phone line had been cut. Whoever had been there was not only looking for money, 
but had also had the forethought to cut off all possibility of outside communication. This suggested that the crime had been premeditated. The killer had planned to kill the family ahead of time. The trio continued through the house and made their way up the stairs to Nancy's bedroom. While they knew what to expect, the sight of the teenage girl's body tucked into the bed was still shocking. <sighs> Blood all over the wall. I, I sent my daughter in to see this. My God. There was no way for you to have known, Clarence. No one could have. I can't believe this happened to the clutters of all people. Hmm. I didn't know them well myself. Let's get a better look at her face, just to be sure. Is this Nancy Clutter? Yes. Yes, that's Nancy. When the sheriff pulled back the blankets that had been placed over Nancy's body, they could see a shotgun wound in the back of her head. She had likely been killed at near point-blank range, and her blood had spattered across the wall. Her hands had been tied behind her back, and her ankles were bound with rope. She was wearing pajamas, socks, slippers, and a bathrobe. This seemed to indicate that she had been awake when the killer arrived, and because she was still fully clothed, it appeared as though their intent wasn't sexual. The men noted everything they could inside Nancy's bedroom, then stepped back into the upstairs hallway. There were three more closed doors at the top floor that they had yet to investigate. They decided to start with the closest one. Inside was a bathroom, nearly empty, except for a single chair sitting in the middle. It seemed very out of place. They then continued to the next door, which appeared to be Kenyon's bedroom. The teenager wasn't there, but his glasses were resting on a shelf beside the bed. The covers were also messy, implying that Kenyon had been woken up and moved elsewhere. They had no clue where he'd gone, but they had a sinking feeling that they would find him soon. Moving on, they approached the final door on the second floor. They opened it slowly, unsure of what they'd find on the other side. Oh, Lord. Bonnie Clutter was lying on the bed of the master bedroom, her eyes wide open in an expression of pure terror. Her petrified face appeared as if, quote, she were still looking at her killer. The men were stunned into silence. She had been shot in the side of her head. Tape hung limply off of her mouth. Ropes ran from her wrists to her ankles and down to the foot of the bed, keeping her locked on her side in a hunched position. It looked almost as though she were praying. She was wearing a robe, a white nightgown, and white socks. The nightgown seemed to indicate she had also been asleep when the killer arrived, but most interesting was the fact that she still wore two golden rings on her hands. The fact that her jewelry remained intact was puzzling to the men. What seemed like murder due to a robbery gone wrong was now something different, darker. Pushing past his shock, the sheriff began to search for the shotgun cartridge. The casing would provide valuable ballistics evidence, but yet he couldn't find it anywhere. To the sheriff, this meant that whoever committed these killings had been savvy enough to get rid of them. With the upper level fully searched, the trio of men moved back down to the ground floor. They still had not found the clutter men, so they made their way to the downstairs bedroom, where they suspected 
they might find Herb. But he wasn't there. Instead, they found Herb's wallet lying at the foot of the bed. An assortment of business cards had spilled out, as if somebody had looked through it, but found no money. Even the sheriff knew Herb Clutter never carried cash. It was difficult to tell if anything had been taken. Just like in Kenyon's room, they noticed that Herb's bed looked slept in, and his glasses were on the nightstand. It seemed he was also sleeping before the killers woke him up. The men continued their search of the first floor, but oddly, nothing seemed out of place. In fact, it looked as if the house hadn't been ransacked at all. Finally, they reached Herb's office where they found his office phone hanging off the hook. Those telephone wires had also been cut. I feel like we've looked everywhere and found nothing. Where the devil can Herb be? As soon as the sheriff asked this question, they heard footsteps coming from inside the house. Alarmed, the sheriff pulled his sidearm. Who's that? It's me, Wendell. Oh, thank God. Who the hell is Wendell? He's my undersheriff. Howdy, fellas. Just came up from the basement. This is quite the mess. Wendell, I don't know what to make of it. There's two bodies upstairs. Well, there's another one down there. (sighs) Lead the way. The three men followed under Sheriff Wendell to the basement. Light streamed in through the windows, and in the corner, lying on a couch, was Kenyon. Kenyon had been shot in the forehead. Like Bonnie, his mouth had been covered with tape, and his arms and legs bound together and tied to the couch itself. He wore only a t-shirt and blue jeans, which seemed to indicate that he dressed quickly, likely after he was woken up, and strangely his head had been propped up with a pillow. Looks like they tried to make him comfortable. Maybe. Or they raised his head to make a clean target. I suppose this means Herb's the only one left. The men turned to the last door in the house, the door to the furnace room, and hesitated. They had seen three gruesome killings, but nothing would prepare them for what they would find on the other side of that door. And it would only be the beginning. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of The Clutter Family, where we'll see how these infamous killings went from unsolved mystery to unforgettable true crime tale. We'll see exactly how the Kansas Bureau of Investigations solved the case. For more information on The Clutter Family murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found In Cold Blood by Truman Capote extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Solved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. 
This episode of Solved Murders was written by Giles Hofseth with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Harris Markson, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 